Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Carbide Content. I'm one of your hosts, John, with Triaxis. And I'm also a host named David from Contraption Collection. And it's just us two. Uh, Grant, I don't know if we should say why he's not here yet. Maybe that's better for him to say himself next week or the week after. And uh, I don't know, Dalen's uh, was busy machining stuff and had to run. Yeah. What What have you been up to, John? So I just got back from Maker Syndicate, which was like a uh, pretty small sized blade show, I guess you could call it. But it was like all makers in the U.S. making stuff for themselves and then selling. So it was like put on by Oz Machine Works, I think is the full name. But it was super cool. It was an indie and it was a very low attendance amount but it ended up being the idea was to have like a low attendance amount like a more personal attendance amount but there ended up being like 500 plus attendees and uh in this like ballroom sized uh, venue and it was really really cool actually so and then so 500 people all who made knives or were most of them people just you know checking stuff out no these were like the attendees so it was 50 dollar entry fee to get in and then, like, there were, I'm not sure how many actual makers there were. I want to, there was probably 20 of us. And there, it was mostly folding knives and some other EDC stuff. But, yeah, I got invited, like, a year ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll have, I'll be rolling in production by then. And then <laughs> I got there with, with six knives. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was super cool. And um, I would do it again. Uh, you sold some knives. Yep, I sold all six and a couple book spots, and it was a quite the learning experience as far as being trying to be fair with selling things and then having an empty table like right at the beginning of the show. So I tried to limit uh like actual sales of knives during the show because what ended up having was like three. We're gonna go in the first thirty minutes, and then I was like, oh well, we're not gonna have anything to show on the table, so we'll just hold them for an hour which annoyed some people but some people understood kind of thing so you can't please everyone but oh um, so you sold them and you you let them buy it but you asked like can i just have them on the table till the end of the day or whatever no not initially actually and i i would totally understand um if somebody had bought one and they were sold and they didn't want people handling it like i totally get that and i actually kind of didn't want to entertain that, but some people were nice enough to actually offer that to us and leave them on the table until the end of the show. Right. So that was really nice of them. But basically like if I had, you know, the only six and then three sold within 30 minutes and the show was four hours long, you end up having nothing there kind of thing. So people walk up yeah. and they're like, what do you do? And you're like, well, I sometimes make knives <laughs> kind of thing. So, um, but I had like my personal one, which was number 13 or 15 from like uh, over a year ago, year and a half ago now, I think. Um, the one I brought to the uh, Blade Show when I was just attending last year and I got to show that, which was which is uh, kind of cool because the difference between that one and then the newer ones, like the all the little subtle changes, but visually they look pretty close kind of thing. I don't know, it was, a, it was a very cool personal show, and I got to talk to a lot of people that I've been messaging on Instagram, but don't have name to face type thing. And uh, 
Yeah, it was really neat. I would definitely do it again for sure. Um, I'd imagine versus Blade Show. I haven't actually sold anything at a Blade Show, but I just hear Blade Show is very. It's a lot more. Uh, it's less personal kind of thing, and it's a lot more of a commitment. I mean, this was, you know, four hours in an afternoon kind of thing, which was, you know, and I was, you know, you're talking the entire time to people who want to be there kind of thing. So, and that was yeah. that was quite a lot for my my introvertedness, but. Um, yeah, doing that for like three days for eight hours, eight hours, uh, at a time would be kind of a bit for <laughs> me anyways, but you know, it, we'll yeah, see. it depends what your goal is. Definitely. Like when I met Grant and Dalen in person for the first time, it was, uh, Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, Blade Show 2022. And, uh, they like basically sold out, you know, maybe the first day, maybe the, like the first day and then half another day. And yeah. so they were just happy to walk around hanging out afterwards they weren't uh trying to keep promoting their brand or something for the whole rest of the show or something i guess yeah yeah i was definitely like bridging the uh feeling bad of not having anything to show kind of thing so and like selling out kind of early but I don't know. Well, that's great you sold out i mean it's not like a huge attendance and your knives aren't like four dollars so And what's cool is like, especially because, you know, people talk about how much different sales are now versus 2022 in the summer. Yeah. Well, it was really cool because a lot of people had no idea or had like kind of seen it somewhere else and just had no real knowledge of the entire knife itself or the company. And it was cool because, you know, we got to show it to people who'd never seen it type thing. So made some contacts that way. And then just more publicity is always a good thing. Not that I can really meet that demand right now, but maybe one day in the future. And it's a good problem to have. You can grow into it kind of thing. So it was really neat. The, I was, uh, I appreciated the opportunity type thing. Cause I was, I was out for this like a year ago and, uh, like, I think I said this before, but, and, um, it <laughs> came up, you know, I was like two weeks ago, I was like, okay, I'm really going to have to make, uh, make knives. And of course the machines, both of them were, were in repair so i ended up making six of them in two days which was a record so wow yeah sometimes it's uh good for the push kind of thing yeah it's a good thing for me but i don't know it was uh it was work for sure yeah that's awesome yeah yeah I, I i love conventions i hope to probably go to utah this year for the mm-hmm. blade show west which i hear is pretty small but uh i think it'll probably still be fun yeah. Um uh should I talk about stuff I've been doing? Of course. Um I feel like I've done a lot. I finally made uh, my first pair of scissors completely of hoss parts. Nice. Which uh seems like it should have happened longer ago and I think maybe some level I was procrastinating cuz it's like scary like what is this going to mean if it sucks mm-hmm. uh but also you know there's lots of other stuff i've been working on and, and it's been a process to work on it but anyway i got the first one done and it did kind of suck i i uh just started with the blades they weren't cutting great i put like more bend in them still weren't cutting that great put them together it's like way too much bend kind of messed up the button a little bit mm-hmm. then i made a second pair and put much less bend in them and they were much nicer and then like i 
I uh, kind of smacked the tip of them with a hammer and suddenly they were cutting like really nice at the tips, even though they had much less bend. Like uh, it was like, oh, oh, like I've been worried that to get good tip cutting, it's just going to mess up my mechanism. I'm just going to have to do some kind of compromise, but they were cutting great. And it's like, okay, that's weird. And I kept smacking them around trying to get them to cut really nice on the rest of the blade because mm-hmm. there was like kind of one spot in the middle that wasn't really cutting. And I ended up just making them much worse. Um, it happens. And so they're still cutting nice at the tip though. And so uh, like that was kind of like a, you know, big disappointment, then a lot of excitement and then confusion again, which is how things often go. Yep. Yep. For sure. And, uh, um, what it kind of made me realize is like, okay, there's definitely some things I'm not understanding still. And so I reached out to Grace Horn, which I've been afraid to. I've only talked to her at blade shows because for some reason, just like bothering people online feels weirder to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was totally happy to do like a video call with me. And so I did. And, Again, there's never like any silver bullets, but um, certain things like what angle I sharpen them to, stuff with the screw and screwing them together, um, the shape of the cutting edge. There's right. there's some stuff where it really like checked. It was good sanity checks and like made me uh, feel like I'm going in the right direction and feel like, uh, uh, you know, just just like. I I know what's important a little better. Yeah. Um, so like more of a, a, a guide, you know, like the, what's that thing in bowling? The, the, the rails. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's so a good analogy. Yeah. Um, and I think she's going to send me a pattern she uses for her, uh, her, a co- she's done a couple of scissor classes and, uh, I might just try making a normal pair of scissors, which is a thing I've said I should do for a long time. And, and haven't, but maybe I'll actually do it, um, or make a ton and, and get a lot of practice. Yeah. Um, because, because I think, I think like what I've kind of known is, you know, some people I think like Dalen are like, Oh man, once you put that first pair of the Haas off together, you know, it's going to be awesome, you know, but like, like I've, I've always known, like, first of all, the parts of the, off the Tormach were not like bad parts. And then secondly, I knew the Tormach ones, weren't going to, I mean, I knew the Haas ones weren't going to be like amazing and perfect because, uh, it's really about this weird bending and stuff and, and geometry design choices. It's not just like hitting tolerances. I mean, I, maybe you could say it is, but it's, you know, this bending stuff isn't something I do in the Haas. And so I knew that it wasn't just going to be like a magic thing, but what's great about the Haas is I've been able to make parts way faster and they are more consistent and accurate. So when I, do tests and put together scissors, I'm less confused what's going on or, or what the issue actually is. And, and I can test more things faster. Yeah. Um, and so now I'm really dialing in the tolerances of, of some of the other things, figuring out where I want them to be exactly. Um, so I'm getting, you know, I'm getting way more confident about making larger and larger numbers of parts at a time. That's good. Yeah. There's definitely something to be said about the, not having to question if it's the machine and just 
being like, okay, it's maybe it's a design thing or like a tolerancing thing type instead of, you know, did the machine home position move on me? And that's why this thing's off type thing. Yeah. So like one thing I was kind of questioning was like, am I just bad at sharpening? The answer is probably yes. But also (laughs) it's what angle do you uh, sharpen to? And, uh, uh, so I, I had been doing like 60 degrees or, or 30 degrees, depending on which side you measure from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just tried doing some at 45 degrees, and that ended up being uh, uh, the ones that cut better. And it's like, oh, you know, is should is that why they cut better? Is it, you know, making them like they're kind of a sharper angle, you know? Is that mm-hmm. – uh, but where they were uh, – when I when I'd made some, including the ones that were really good, they were just kind of really clanking into each other in a way mm-hmm. that um, uh, I hadn't seen before, and and that's one thing that like you know Grace Horn told me is is kind of you know forty five degrees is probably too far. It's it's too uh, sh- sharp of angle, I guess you could say. Yep. Uh, and you will be more likely to have the blades just kind of hit each other instead of you know like pushing against each other, they just kind of hit each other and you could end up like chipping the blades. Right. And so, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's a bad idea to, to change multiple variables at once. Um, and so maybe that's a little bit of what I was doing, Mm -hmm. but like, that's kind of good thing to know where it's like, okay, that wasn't the defining variable. Like this is the angle I had at sharpening them before probably is the way to go. Um, if I want them to be like general purpose scissors and less likely to chip and stuff or less likely to, you know, clang together. Yeah. That's the actual cutting edge, right? So very, yeah. very short part of the actual blade. Yeah. The bevel is like five degrees. It's super, you know, shallow. Yeah. Okay. It's weird. Cause like apparently from her, uh, uh, scissors, you kind of measure the angle, the opposite that you would a blade. Mm hmm. And so what what do you like do the actual sharpening angle on yours too? Um what do they call it? It's like included angle or uh like whole angle or something. Yeah. Then... Yeah, so like the whole angle and then split it in half. Yeah, I'm doing mine to twenty one degrees, so I guess that's twenty one degrees per side kind of thing. Uh twenty one per side or or forty two included? Uh, I think that's per side because you set the angle and then you, you, when you do one, you basically sharpen one side and you flip it 180 and you do the other side and that's still at 21. So that would be 42 total for the entire wedge. Right. So it's like 20 degrees, but for scissors, that'd be, I guess you'd call it 60. I mean, um, 70 degrees. I don't oh, okay, know. Yeah. Away from 90. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, cause lots of scissors, they're like 60 or 80 degrees or sorry, like 20 or 30 degrees, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I still might refer to it the other way around, but the point is, I think, I think steeper is kind of better. Um, I think the kind of shallow pocket thing I did on the back of the scissors is also helping. And, uh, maybe I should even go further with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I think the bending stuff I'm starting to get a better handle on, but um, 
like I I think like I made like special jaws that have a curve in them to bend it. I think Grace Horn kind of made me think maybe I should just go back to the kind of three points with the vice or three points with a arbor press. Yeah. Because I can maybe control it better and kind of poke around in different spots to get it just right. Right. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Kind of bring it back simple instead of trying to make it like a all encompassing uh, solution, you know? Yeah. Because what I was thinking for a while was like, well, I need more pressure at the tip. So maybe I should like make more of a spiral curve instead of just a, you know, even curve, like where mm-hmm. it, you know, it's like more bent towards the tip. Uh, but it sounds like that is not the, the route to go. Yeah, that would be really hard, at least for me to figure out how to make something press it to that actual angle, I guess, where it changes along the blade instead of just putting like a bend in it, you know? No, I, I, um, I think that's been a big issue with, with a lot of this stuff is like how much trial and error am I willing to do? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think people, I don't, I'm not sure what people perceive of my videos. Like if they think, like I've only made the scissors I've shown or something, but you know, I'm, I've put together probably many dozens of bow scissors and I've, I've made, you know, probably several hundred blades at this point. It feels like, probably. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's just, it's just hard to figure out what you should be putting the trial and error into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think messing with the screw is something I should have put more trial and error into. I, I think my, my very first design for a while didn't even have a screw holding the blades together. I just had a pin because I just thought the handles, the way they sandwich everything together, that would be good enough. Yep. But then that kind of makes the scissor blade tuning the same as the balisong tuning. Mm-hmm. And they kind of need to be different. Yep. Um, and in a way, I'm still kind of relying on the sandwich because I'm, I'm often just screwing this, uh, the screw in, and then uh, not lock tightening it, but putting the the things together, and the screw can't back out because the handles are in the way. But that's still like no matter how accurate I try to be, there's still like probably too much play there, and so I think I should have been lock tightening screws at different tensions and testing things more. And if I was really doing things the way you know, she does or, or, or a lot of other scissors do it, you know, I'd be riveting or welding or something, the screw in place once it's, you know, at the perfect tension, right. Like, you know, more fixing it permanently. Um, a lot of scissors, you know, you have to sharpen, you know, with them attached together. Um, because the, you know, they just, they just make them so you can't ever disassemble them once they get the tension just right. Yeah. I wonder if you could, get a cheap spot welder and try that or something. I might, um, assuming Dalen isn't too busy, he's going to make me some special shoulder screw design mm-hmm. we came up with. Um, cause he's, he's had this opinion for a while that I should just try a different screw. And I'm not sure if it'll work because it won't have the adjustability and permanence that I might need. Mm-hmm. But it'll be something instead of just a countersink screw and a tap blade, um, it'll be kind of a you know a screw j- just like how um, you know butterfly knives have have the pivots with like a female 
barrel and a a male screw. Um, you know, do something like that for the blades where maybe if you can get the distances just right, um, you know, it'll be tight, but, but, uh, not so tight. It keeps the blades from moving. So right. I'm going to at least try that once and see, see if, how that goes. But I, I may have to do something wilder, like a laser welder or something. Yeah. Hmm. I have no way to help you with this, but I do think maybe if fixing it in place as you know, a cheap spot welder might be an okay thing, but definitely the tunability is kind of nice with screws. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to just be open-minded. I, I also think I'm trying to not chase perfection too much. I really am trying to make lots of good parts and get all the other stuff working nicely so mm-hmm. that maybe I will summon, you know, just like the first ones I sold, just be like, yeah, these are mostly for paper. You know, the, the, the stuff I'm chasing is like, you know, can it cut thin things without them just being pushed through? Like cutting paper's always been fine. Um, I've just been worried, you know, someone tries cutting something else and they're disappointed. Um, and, and like, I, you know, I, I could, uh, I could go for heavier things, but I'm, I'm a little more afraid of that with the, at least with the aluminum handles, uh, yeah. how much I mean, damage you could do trying to cut through like quarter inch thick leather or something. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you know. At at some point you have to be like, you know, these are these are scissors. Like when I buy scissors at the store, I don't expect to cut actually leather with them. Like I'm buying them to cut paper kind of thing. So like you might have to design for it to be reliable in that in that realm. But if you try to do this thing where you're like, they're really smooth, really good, and they cut paper and other thicker things, that's really, really challenging to get right in large scale, I'd imagine, unless you want to pull your hair out for a long time. So I think it's okay to actually say that, you know, they're really good at this thing. And then, you know, the people buying them, they know that kind of thing and they expect that. But yeah, I, 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 um, I definitely think I have to be like reasonable with my expectations and and other people have to be reasonable, but I do, you know, it's hard not to, it, it feels weird that I get like, electricians saying they want them and i'm like are you gonna cut wire with these and people who want to like cut hair with them and people who want to um cut like uh bonsai trees or plants or something and it's like all of these all these different things are so different like you know like i i could get you a really great pair of scissors from Ernest Wright or whatever that are mm-hmm. handmade and beautiful but i don't think you'd want to cut wire with them i'm not sure if they'd be great for hair cutting and I'm not sure if they'd be great for cutting, you know, branches, you know, to me, those are all very different tools. And so I, I'm not trying to make some perfect scissors that doesn't exist. I'm just, I'm just trying to make them, you know, at least as good as, as, you know, any other scissors that you have around your house, normal yeah, scissors. I mean, I mean, you got to really look at it like, you know, how, how do you want them to be? And then people are not just buying them because they're scissors. They're buying them because there's a story and they're cool and they're ballad songs. Like, yes, maybe an electrician wants to buy them to cut wire. I don't know why they would do that when there are very acceptable electrician related tools already. So that, you know, it's like one of those things 
that you want it this way, you designed it this way, and people will be happy to buy them because you designed them to do this thing. And no matter what, they'll be happy with it kind of thing. And then anyone who's not, well, they weren't a customer that there weren't the intended audience, you know, kind of thing. And the demand is definitely there for your, you know, these that can cut paper. Definitely. Like you won't run out anytime soon if that's what yeah, they're. I'm guessing for. most people who actually would pay if they were on my website for sale, I'm guessing most of them are probably people who are like collectors and fans of the channel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that I, I'm not misrepresenting anything in someone who is like a, a hairstylist who already spends, you know, a few hundred dollars on really nice scissors or something doesn't, you know, I hope they know enough about hair cutting scissors that they wouldn't get the wrong idea that these have anywhere similar geometry to hair cutting scissors. Yeah. And I mean, at that, at that point, really, it's not, that's not your problem, actually, you know, like, if if they want a specific tool for a specific thing, then they should be buying the tool for that instead of hoping that this very unique product that does more than one thing is supposed to be able to do many other unique cutting duties. And, you know, it's not realistic for yourself to be able to handle all that sort of multitasking as far as just cutting goes. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. There's something to be said about, you know, drilling down on one thing like it cuts paper and it cuts paper really good where i feel like people would that's something they can rely on and they actually like that more kind of thing so like reviewers are you know it does this thing really good and so people expect that and then it kind of kind of builds its own reputation doing that sort of thing but if you try to do this thing where you try to fit everything into it one you go crazy and two uh Sometimes people are, they're confused actually about what are we trying to achieve here? So I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's what you want. So it's, it's your, your thing to chase if you want. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, again, like I, I don't think that the, the, uh, um, trying to make them the best scissors ever is, is holding me back. I, I think it's mostly just wanting to feel like they're consistent where, you know, I had so much issues with the button for a long time where I just felt like I, you know, had to hammer it to get the button to work. Now mm-hmm. I don't have to hammer it, but I've still had like so many pairs where it just feels so different and weird. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, I still think like in the current design, I'm going to have to say like, oh, you know, don't squeeze the handles when you press the button, you know, just relax and it'll work. Um, like there's still going to be a little instruction, but I'm just trying to get it to the point where like, I know what it should feel like. I know how it works and I could hand it to someone and, and reasonably assume they could figure it out and not have to be like, Oh, this is ball scissors number 87. I think that one was tighter. I think, you know, it had a little weird wiggle with the button. You have to make sure you push it to the side a little, you know, I just don't want stuff like that where it's like completely inconsistent. Yeah. From scissor to scissor. Right. Yep. But you will, you will definitely get there. I mean, it's like on my stuff, uh, stuff is still not as consistent as I would want it to be, but I'm at the point where I can kind of assemble them and have like a 80, 90% certainty that these parts will make a 
consistently running knife and I might have to change like the stop pin size or the lock bar insert or something, but it's less about like, does it actually function close enough to how I want it to feel and me be okay, like selling it. Now put three of them next to each other. They will feel slightly different, but they're within the realm of like expectation, I guess. So somebody would expect them to do mostly the same thing if they i don't know like wrist flicked it or something like it feels 90 percent the same between the three and i don't know i'm i'm happy with that based on the time it's taken to get there but obviously i would like to get it as you know tighter and tighter as time goes on no i mean you and me compared to the butterfly knives there's a lot more parts being put together and so you know i i think with you it, there's some ease that like at least your knife works like other knives where Mm -hmm. mine, I don't think anyone has, you know, practiced holding it and pressing it exactly how you have to. Um, so I think that's why I'm like so paranoid about it. Mm -hmm. Um, or why other people are. Cause like I said, I think I've just also run into people who are just nervous that they're going to do something wrong. Um, and so maybe they're more cautious than they should be. And that's, part of the issue um, hey they'll they'll learn you know you get a new yeah. car or something and the the lock sequence is weird on it and people they don't run out and tell everyone that the the car sucks that the lock sequence is uh is weird they just learn how to do it you know and then th- that's it like it becomes a non-issue over time so yep yeah. yeah but uh i've been uh like I, I don't want to say what what the projects are yet, but I've been trying other projects as well, and uh, it's been going super great. Where, uh, you know, just throwing a pallet on the machine and having it come out nice is very nice compared to the Tormach. Um, Absolutely. I think uh, I think the biggest issue I've had is uh, I've been trying to use helicoils and. I don't know what happened, but somehow the end of one of my helicoil insertion tools, prewinder things was, uh, it just got like really messed up Mm. and, um, and I was like bummed and, uh, I really wanted to make these fixtures and stuff though. One of them was for the scissors. So I just ordered another tool from McMaster, even though they're super expensive uh, just cause I, I knew I wanted to keep trying with the helicoils on my next pallets. Um, but I, I eventually just got like a rotary tool and some files and was able to fix the original one. But what's weird is when I got the second a 32 helicoil spinny tool, mm-hmm. it seems higher quality. Mm. Like I got two different brands from McMaster. I think that's a possibility for yeah. sure. Sure, they have substitutes kind of thing and so here i actually have them uh so <laughs> chris lynn made in usa uh maybe that one's not so good uh you hear that chris lynn <laughs> make your and stuff then, uh i think the other one is just from the brand helicoil and uh. it seems it also is made in usa so you know if you like that that's good either way uh, but yeah, it's the actual helicoil brand one. It's like all one piece where the other one has like a tip that can come off and it like, 
in a way that could be good if, if you like mess up the helicoil, but mostly it was just annoying that the tip, uh, like on the, the sleeve part kept coming off. So I don't know. That's a weird thing. I just wanted to, to point out. Hmm. Usually McMaster's like really great with what they give you, but that first one I got, I don't know, made out of zinc or something. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I've never used the helicoil on any fixturing stuff. I usually just form tap it and then try not to strip them out kind of thing. Yeah. I, um, I, I haven't used them in, in many years, but I made this one pallet a few weeks ago and just this one area of the pallet, I just kept, it, it was like a test pallet. So I like did, you know, it just had like random stuff on it and I mm-hmm. like made a little area made some threads and they kept stripping out and I'm like, Oh, that sucks. And so I like moved everything over an inch, remachined it out, did it again. And again, like tried to put a screw in, uh, to tighten stuff down and it like stripped. And it's like, is this section of the pallet made out of cottage cheese instead of aluminum? And so I was like, okay, maybe I should, you know, examine if I should be using helicoils. So are you, what were you doing? Were you thread milling or like normal cut tap or, uh, I was I always form tap, or at least before I was using the helicoil tap, I was I always form tap, um, and I don't know why I I haven't I didn't have issues like ever uh, with a, and it, and it wasn't like a, the first time I screwed something in it didn't work. It was just like I'd make like three parts, and then on the fourth part, it just is like turned to mush. Hmm. I mean, so I, form, the form tap tolerance is pretty close to like nominal, you know, like a like an H one or something. I think that's closer to nominal. Yeah, I really i I can't remember what uh, I can't remember if it was a pit bull thread or if it was a, a, a like an actual screw going through a hole in the part. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't remember what kind of like forces were going on. Um. I think it was just like a, a a threaded hole with a shoulder in the pallet for a shoulder screw for the like precision shoulder screws I use for locating things with like tabs on parts. Mm. Um, These shoulder I, screws, do the shoulder follow the bolt itself or do they like stay in place and then the bolt holds the shoulder down? If you get what I mean. There's a... Uh, there's like a counterbore in the pallet. Does that answer yep. your question? So basically that if you took the screw out, you could pull the shoulder, like the locating shoulder out, out of the pallet. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I've never used shoulder bolts. I, I just, uh, you can't really locate things as accurately with just threads. So, yes. um, you know, it's got, it's got a, you know, I do a counterbore hole and then drill and tap, um, you know, deeper than the counterbore or, mm-hmm. or I don't know, maybe I do the counterbore second. It depends what I'm making exactly. But, you know, the, the shoulder goes through this, the actual part in a nice precision hole you make and through the pallet so that everything lines up perfect. Although sometimes you have to, with the heat treated parts, I'm finding I'm having to enlarge the actual part holes a little bit because stuff moves slightly. Yeah. I wonder if it's something to do with the the way shoulder bolts just are that cause them to want to strip things more or something. 
I don't know. I, I, I again, like I, I've had lots of other pallets on the Tormach and the Haas that uh hadn't had this issue. I, I probably don't need to be using helicoils. Um, part of me just likes trying things. I mean, I have used them in the past, but still, for the sake of argument, it's nice trying new things to like have something to talk about in a video and stuff as well. Yeah, true. And uh, I'm gonna get a few more tool holders soon, and and so I maybe I'll leave the regular tap set up again so I don't because right now I don't have enough tool holders to do the helicoils and the regular taps. Yeah, it's definitely nice to be able to like you know leave them set up kind of thing, drill and tap, and then just load them and then just go from there instead of having to set things up every time. Yeah. But, yeah. Another thing I was trying that was new. Well, not again, I guess it's not new. I decided to try a carbide reamer mm-hmm. and I was having so much trouble with it. You saw me complaining on discord. I just uh, looked at it actually like before we started. Yeah. Where I got it from Lakeshore carbide. I've mostly liked Lakeshore carbide, but I don't use them as much anymore. Um, and, uh, every tool holder I tried ER, call it different orientations, SK call it. And then a uh, hydraulic, I feel like I was getting like a thou of run out and it's a fairly short tool. And so, you know, with the high speed steel reamers, I know you can just like follow, you know, it just bends and follows the hole. They're, they're nice and long, mm-hmm. um, but it's a short little carbide reamer. And I don't know if I just got a bad one or something, but it was always seemed really Maybe not even run out. Maybe just not concentric or something, because uh, I it was just making the worst holes ever. Finish was bad too. Yeah, the finish in the hole. It's like it, 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 the wall finish looks like ten grit sandpaper. The pre hole, you you checked it and everything. It was right size. Yeah, so I was using a one eighty two uh, drill. Uh, just a like a cobalt drill, and those holes seem great. It's it it's actually I was you know normally I wasn't uh you know pay it that much attention to what goes on with the the drilled hole, but I I checked it and yeah it's like it's actually right perfectly on size and and uh, looks great. Uh, I even chamfer the hole before reaming, which I heard you're maybe supposed to do, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's just, I think, trying to make a bigger hole than it's supposed to or something. Interesting. I don't do much reaming. Like, I haven't reamed stuff in a while. I was trying to do it, doing it with the, the handles a couple of weeks back, but I was like, the interpolating was being reliable enough, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the, the tools away for now kind of thing. But I would like to try it again, so that's interesting that... It was running out that much, though, even in a hydraulic holder. I don't know if they're... I would imagine they're not supposed to run out that much because that would make them not very precise. So maybe you just got a bad batch of them. But Yeah, so with, with high-speed steel reamers, and I think Dalen was saying this is also maybe true with, with the carbide reamers he uses. You know, they're nice and long, so they kind of just bend and follow the hole a little bit. Um, reamers aren't great for positional accuracy, you know, you're better off using a boring head or, or maybe even an end mill if if you're trying to get positional accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, they just follow the hole and make it a smoother finish and more accurate than a drill because drills drill sl- slightly triangular holes apparently or something the way they move. Um, 
Anyway, so uh, yeah, the, the 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 one I have, it seems short enough that I just don't think it's it's following the whole because I don't think it it really can. Um, uh, I also heard I don't think I said this, so I'm using 182 drill for a 1875 hole. Uh, Dalen was saying maybe I should leave like seven thou per side a different machine friend was also saying i should i should start with a smaller drill i have switched to a high speed steel drill and i mean high speed steel uh reamer and that seems to be working pretty good um with the drill i'm using what, what um, was the the pre-size for the 1875 reamer 182 okay so, so the that, rule of thumb like, i heard like 3%, was right i heard that you should drill 98% of the finish size. Okay. That that was what I heard. I thought you take like barely anything off with a reamer. But apparently according to Dalen and and this other friend who's been a machinist for a long time uh it should be more than that. I don't know exactly the numbers, but I, I guess 98% is not the the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it depends obviously on quite a few factors and then material and all that. But, uh, it seems like two to 3% is a pretty common, uh, pre-ream, uh, rule of thumb, if you will. Yeah. I, I think it's what I'm doing is aluminum. I basically, I was just experimenting because if you're using the same tool for different features, different parts, uh, you know, like, like basically I'll use the eighth inch end mill for a lot of stuff. And I kind of want to be able to leave the offset for certain operations that I know works. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and if I have a different thing, um, it's nice to just sometimes have a different tool entirely. So you don't worry about if you wish you could slightly adjust the wear for this different feature of a part or, uh, or, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so that's why I was experimenting with a reamer and, and uh, I have used high-speed steel reamers in the eighth-inch size for a little while for my spacers uh, and the scissors. And, uh, yeah, it's totally fine, totally totally works. You can definitely do a ton of holes with just high-speed steel. Yeah, I'll, like most of the reaming I've done has been both like cobalt pre-ream size drill and then like a, a nice high speed steel reamer, but the last ones I was using was actually carbide for the titanium just cause I was trying to get them to last longer, but I really didn't use them that much because interpolating was working good enough essentially, but I don't know. It's something I would like to try again. So yeah, you'll be, be the group expert. I'm sure. I mean, cause, cause I, I was like asking Dalen a few weeks ago what his thoughts were about reaming. And he's like, eh, I just interpolate everything, whatever. But then like immediately he's like, actually I've switched to reaming <laughs> because like on, he's making bushings on his lathe and, and making a, you know, prismas or a few different things. I don't know. Uh, he's decided to start reaming and has having luck with it. So I'm like, well, maybe I should also reexamine if I should be using it for more things. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. It's one of those things like, I can see it's it's use for for sure, but it does take up another tool spot. So if that's a concern, which you know it it very well could be a major concern, then uh, that's a concern. 
No, I mean, taking up a tool in the tool changer does suck. Um, like I was talking about doing the counterbores for fixtures uh, um, with the with the nice uh, shoulder screws, the precision shoulder screws. And part of me kind of is thinking, like, should I get a counterbore reamer for doing that? Because I do it a lot. It's always the same size. It'd be kind of nice to just have it perfect, even if I have to swap a tool out of the machine, just knowing it'll, like, come out perfect. And, like, I don't even have to worry about any weird machine interpolation stuff or worry about like, do I need to adjust my offset or accidentally set the offset wrong and like scrap a pallet? You know, there's reasons I kind of want to do it for more things. Um, but I'm still not there yet. I I'm just, you know, you can, you could do things so many different ways. And like, I think I have a tendency to want to do things like the right way where it's like, if I, if I know a special tool exists, for counterboring it's like well maybe i should do that even though oftentimes you know it's just better to use the tool that's already set up in the machine yeah i mean at the end of the day like you're like you're still not a job shop so what ends up happening is like you make all these fixtures and they end up being like a couple months worth of reliability type thing and then that that special counterbore reamer just sits there in a tool holder gathering yep. dust you know so like there's something to be said by just okay i'm gonna come in with a square end mill and cut those and be done with it kind of thing even though it takes the extra five minutes for that one fixture like you're not well, saving it's much a, time over it's, to me it's kind of the opposite where job shops i've heard uh like the dr phil experience not the the talk show host guy but uh yeah he makes um, motorcycle parts yeah, that guy's super cool, and he, and I went to his talk at Autodesk University where he's talking about how he has, you know, he just he doesn't do any drilling practically. He just interpolates everything and makes, you know, has certain end mills set up, and he just makes parts for customers super fast. Mm -hmm. um, like if I was a job shop, I would, uh, I would definitely do that. Um, but because I am trying to make the same parts over and over, and often am making the same pallets essentially or at least pallets that use the same hardware or clamps or whatever over and over um it makes me feel like eh, maybe i could just uh you know take one extra tool holder out of the machine that's for buttons or whatever that i don't need to make for a while so that i can just have another tool set up for fixtures or something yeah but i'm not thinking about it that much i maybe you know i i've, I've probably thought about <laughs> this uh more during this conversation than actually you know buying tools or whatever yeah makes sense just you will you will keep you us gotta, updated on reaming then <laughs> you know you try stuff out sometimes you just want to try something different i guess yeah absolutely i i know the uh the feeling for sure and uh it can certainly lead to some new discoveries that a lot of people don't know about because they are doing what everyone else is doing kind of thing. So doing that stuff sometimes is beneficial, but there is a reason that sometimes the average is not to do that kind of thing. Not this specific example, but just, uh, you know, for other examples, I guess. Another sort of example is, is I've made a couple of videos about using a slitting saw to make buttons Mm -hmm. And I still am, but I 
I'm doing it now with my latest palette I made for buttons. I'm doing it now with um, a key seat key cutter mm-hmm. where uh, it's from Harvey. It's like a half inch shank. And then the blades like it, it's like a high speed steel shank, I think, with a carbide blade like welded to it or, you know, uh, what's the word I'm using, looking for? Um, brazed. Yeah, like brazed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's nice because there's no nut on the bottom getting in the way with the saw and uh and so my latest fixture has been really awesome um and like i can uh, like i I don't know i i think i think i'm gonna stick with the key seat cutter instead of the saw for most things at this point yeah well it's good to have found something that works anyways even if you know the saw is always the recommended thing I think it'd be different if I was doing a different material because the key seat cutters are expensive and uh, if it wore out faster than it would in aluminum, maybe the cost wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it'll probably last quite a while in aluminum, uh, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, cool. Anything... Uh, You've been changing up with making stuff? No, I did those, you know, six knives before the show. I, like, stayed up really early that morning and then got those finished, drove to Boston, and then uh, went to the show. So I was kind of, like, just scrambling around, throwing knives and parts into each other and getting them together. So tomorrow I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do because I have to order a bunch of stuff that I'm now missing or ran out of and like some book spot stuff I need to handle but I don't know just keep on doing what I'm doing I guess there's some blades I need to hard mill and the lathe stuff needs to continue to get set up so that's probably going to take quite a bit of time but I need to make like new new pivot pivots and pivot screws and I want to put the pivot screws on the lathe because I actually make the pivot screw on the mill completely and they're not always very concentric to the head of the screw, which is really annoying. So I'd like mm. to actually make them on the on the lathe and be a lot better. Yeah, but yeah, just making stuff better, better quality, better. Just you know, making that getting that last five percent dialed in kind of thing. Do you use a reverse osmosis for water? Yep. For, for yep. Cool. I yeah. got just like a cheap Amazon thing, and then a. Uh, ICB tote from off of Facebook Marketplace and this last summer, and that's been super, super good. Yeah, so I think because of you, maybe Dale and Grant also have the same one. I, I got an Amazon uh, reverse osmosis filter, and I didn't understand the idea of a big water tote, but maybe now I do, because 100 gallons a day sounds fast, mm-hmm. but yeah, it it takes like 40 minutes to fill up a five gallon bucket or something. Yeah. Yep. Or maybe, maybe a little less than that, maybe like 25 minutes or something, but yeah, yeah. it's way well, the, slower than I expected. The consideration for me is the, and this is just, it's cheap Amazon stuff. So it's like, if you want an industrial solution, that'd be different. But because of me, the efficiency of those things are way better when it's like 70 plus degrees out and come winter time it's not going to be fun to pull the hose out and bring it to the garage and fill this tank up. So it's nice to have at least some reserve of water when it was warm kind of thing to make it more efficient. But uh, yeah, they're not that fast for sure. And the amount of waste water they have is a little, 
annoying, but I guess that's just the nature of forcing water through filters. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't understand how the wastewater thing works. I don't know if a fancier machine pushes all the water through somehow. Just yeah, a I'm big sure. I'm sure it uses hydraulic like press sort of boost pump or something to actually uh, use it a little more efficiently. But at these volumes, at least me and you, I mean, you know, Dalen, Dalen and Grant probably could use something a little better, but. It it works for me for now. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not gonna upgrade it or anything. I I just uh, you know have to set a timer at the beginning of the day if I feel like I'm gonna need more coolant or something and give it twenty minutes. Yeah, I just let it go. Like I I filled the t- filled the ICB tote up anyways as much as I could over four days. I just let it run and run and run into it. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I have it. Uh, I have it attached to a sink. Right now, so yeah, uh, I'm not worried about being cold at in the winter. So I, I think I, I think my setup's good for now. Makes sense. Sweet. But, what uh, about what about you? How's your week outlook looking? I mean, it's good. It feels like I've been getting lots of different things done, um, like uh, the reverse osmosis thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I last thing about that is, uh, I do think. Uh, I think you can visually tell the water's clearer. I think I have pretty hard water. Gotcha. Yeah, I, you can test for that with a TDS meter, I think. Yeah, I should uh, I should get some different types of water tester things. Um, I don't mind tap water at my house, but if I run the hot spigot uh, at my shop, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's pretty cloudy, and I don't know if it's like, air or more minerals or what but it's like uh i feel like more afraid to to drink the the, i i don't i don't love drinking the tap water here anyway but i i feel more scared drinking the hot one for some reason yeah well now you can drink it with your ro system mine like the tap water is fine here personally but i'm kind of afraid to drink out of the ro system too because it's like maybe it needs to run a few gallons through to really get all the whatever (laughs) leftover plastic in the filter when they manufacture it or something. Yeah. You do have to run it for like 30 minutes. Do like a, for that kind of reason. Um, yeah, but it definitely like for me anyways, like I thought the tap water was good enough and it was causing the tool changer to get tools stuck in the spindle on the Haas and going to RO water actually stopped that, which is interesting. But that was the fix. That's what I'm curious about. I think that's maybe why I decided to do it was uh, I've had a few tools where it's like a real clothunk when it yeah. pulls the tool out. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should see if uh, if the RO water changes like Grant, uh, Johnton said. Yeah, very. it's very interesting, but I guess something to do with tap water caused it to just stick that much more under pressure. Yeah, so the- I, I um, what I did... Uh, is my tank got like kind of around 50% uh, empty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when it was around that point, I filled up several buckets, not not at once, but you know, several buckets of RO water and uh, put in, I tried to do like close to 1% coolant because I was, uh, I, I think when I measured it, I was pretty high, like 16% or something. Mm-hmm. So I definitely needed less, but, According to Haas's video about refilling your tank, you shouldn't 
uh, you shouldn't put just water in. You, you know, you should uh, always put at least a little bit of coolant. Uh, I just uh, dump it in because of how it emulsifies or whatever. No, I'm trying to do things right. So I, I put put a little tiny bit of coolant in, like seven ounces or something, mm-hmm. and uh, stir it up a little bit with a little piece of wood I have. Hopefully that's not bad. Uh, and then uh, dump the bucket into the machine. Yeah. Do you um do you let the the coolant level in the tank go down to fifty percent and still run the coolant pump? Uh, well, uh, I don't think I haven't had the mach- the Haas machine that long, so I don't. Uh, there's probably only a couple times it's gone as low as fifty percent, and it starts putting like a red thing over your G code, being like low coolant, and so um, I know that if you get uh, I don't know how low you have to get, but definitely I haven't run it low enough where I don't, I feel like the, the, the pump lost any pressure. Yeah. I honestly wouldn't, I would, I would try to keep it over 70%. Starting to get under there is you're running into like pump cooling issues. Oh, really? And that's just what I've heard. I, the pump hasn't died on mine, but I have always kept it over at least 60%, like, religiously. Like, I won't run it if it's not over that kind of thing. And it makes a noticeably different noise when it is under, like, 70 60% in that area. So, but, I don't know, I'm not a pump engineer. <laughs> well, I, I got the RO thing, and I just was a little lazy to set it up, and so the timing just kind of coincidentally worked out that I could switch out a fairly good percentage of uh of the water yep um but i don't know how much percentage it's gonna have to be to start seeing a difference with like the tool holder sticking or not i think for me it was it it was pretty quick like uh you know five gallons would evaporate here and there so it was probably like over like half a week maybe like four days or something i don't know yeah i think it sounded okay today um i also have through spindle coolant so if i ever use that um, you know, it gets into the tool taper when it switches tools and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Than I mean, that machine. would be much more helpful in, in my opinion, especially if your water's like cloudy out of the tap, I would definitely imagine that's much better for the, yeah, the through spindle system. When, uh, I watched the Haas video again about just like, you know, how you should refinish, uh, fill your coolant tank. Uh, they actually mentioned deionized water and, that's different than reverse osmosis, right? Yeah, that's, as I understand, like an extra step. So that's to actually take the ions out of the water or something to get it to be electrically neutral. I'm talking out of my ass here. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, sure. makes so, it makes sodium and chloride be friends again or something. Yeah. Um, I have heard, yeah, I've heard it, you like I'm sure you have as well every which way but like distilled water on fill up maybe and then you can run tap water after or I've heard run tap water to the initial fill and then distilled water after or whatever some sort of combination or you know distilled to start RO after (laughs) it's like really at the end of the day I feel like at this point in the coolant it's the technology with coolant is they've got a lot of the edge cases pretty nailed down. So as long as your water is visually clear and it doesn't smell weird or foam, you're probably like in the 90% uh, 
good range, you know what I mean? As long as it's not acting weird, so I try not to worry about it too much, but I don't know. I'm well, not. I I um I'm not I I'm not sure why deionized would make a difference. Uh, if if anyone doesn't know though, I guess the reason why you'd want to do something like this is if you just keep using tap water, the water evaporates, but all the sediment doesn't. So over time, you just get more and more sediment in your coolant tank, which eventually there could be just too much that it affects how well the coolant like binds to the water or mm-hmm. it doesn't mix in as well or something, as well as just maybe making your coolant tank grosser. I don't know. Um, but what I'm curious is, uh, I wonder if it's going to make any difference tumbling. I, I haven't used a tumbler in a little while and I did today and I used RO water and this is probably a different issue, but I feel like my tumbler water only after a few days starts to like stink and be gross. Yeah. Mine does too. Especially if you let it sit. It smells like a wet sock. Yeah, I, I don't really have a big problem with the coolant in the machines. And I'm using their soapy, oily, whatever stuff from CM Topline. Uh, you know, I'm putting in how much they say to put into the water before tumbling. And yeah, I just feel like it gets grosser faster than anything. I mean, you know what the change interval on that stuff is, right? It's super low. It's like eight hours of runtime. Yeah, I, I definitely don't. I mean, I, I, I'm not letting things, I'm not, I don't have to do as much tumbling as you guys do. So I'm not using it a crazy amount longer than that, but it, it, you know, because I don't do a tumble, a lot of tumbling, you know, I might do a few hours one day and then a few days later do another few hours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if just bacteria on my hand gets in the water and then it's, you know, the end of it's going to start growing disgusting I mean, stuff or what i mean maybe but i don't know how big the tank you have is but like the percentage of hand bacteria to the actual amount of fluid and then the time it takes i feel like it's probably just the nature of like ceramic media and sitting in something i don't really know but it's not like i've ever seen anything growing in mine at least well maybe i'm dumb like i remember a long time ago i got a bubbler for my Tormach because I heard it keeps stuff from growing. Mm-hmm. I, except I think I didn't actually use it for more than a couple months or something and I forgot about it. Maybe that's what I should be doing. I just need to put something that moves the water around so it's not standing water. I mean, if you're if you're tumbling like every other day, I feel like that would be enough movement. Um, but I don't know. Like, I've had... Stuff growing water pretty fast, and then sometimes just not. You know, it, it, I feel like it depends on so many different things that I don't understand. And maybe this is a dumb rookie mistake that, you know, gave me salmonella I don't know about or something. But uh, I thought, like, oh, I'll just put a lid on it and it won't be gross anymore. But that made it much worse for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that would be not a good thing, actually, because then you're giving it a nice, cool, dark place. And then- Yeah, I don't know how things work. I just assumed that, you know, it's life, so it must need some energy from the sun to keep operating. Yeah. But it seemed worse trying to put a lid on it. Yeah. Life grows in a lot of different environments. So, I mean, 
you know. Yeah, I, I got those water bears in my water. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, that's about all I got. What about you? I think uh, I'm good. Sweet. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, bye. Thank you. Bye. Yeah.